What was the exact root of opposition between the United States and the state of Eritrea? Who were the Tigrayan People's Liberation Front, and what was their issue with the people of Eritrea? How has the mainstream media distorted the situation on the ground in Eritrea and Ethiopia? What role has the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam played in undermining the United States and regional neighbors? Will Ethiopia become the next African nation to fall? This week on the Global Research News Hour, while the headlines are raging around the war in Ukraine, we will feature a discussion about a nation where the death toll has risen to as many as half a million due to fighting, starvation, and lack of medical attention. We are taking a look at the difficulties facing Ethiopia and Eritrea after the new round of violence that erupted into a civil war as of November of 2020. We first speak to an American activist originally from Eritrea to explain the situation from his perspective. In our second half hour, journalist Anne Garrison joins us while she's in the middle of her investigative tour through Ethiopia and Eritrea to give us more on the situation and more about the role of the U.S. in undermining the people, peace of the people. On this week's program, the bloodshed plaguing the people of the Horn of Africa. What is America's role? Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of May 20th, 2022. The program is funded by the Center for Research on Globalization, produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg, on the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe, Ininu, Oji, Cree, Diné, and Dakota, the birthplace of the Métis Nation and the heart of the Métis Nation homeland. I'm your host, Michael Welch. The show seeks to provide listeners with access to analysis of some of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our shows are featured on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States and available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca. We'll begin our show with news notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. Listeners should know that some of the articles may run against common messaging about sensitive subjects and are not all endorsed by this radio station. Natural bird flu is notoriously harmless to humans, but Bill Gates and Dr. Anthony Fauci have, for many years, funded research to develop a bird flu pathogen capable of infecting humans. Some of that research has been undertaken in Pentagon-funded biolabs in Ukraine. Gates funded research by Dr. Yoshihiro Kawaioka in which the bird flu virus was mixed with the 2009 H1N1 or swine flu virus creating an airborne hybrid capable of completely evading the human immune system effectively rendering humans defenseless against it. The U.S. and other countries have already started stockpiling H5N1 vaccine and the H5N1 vaccine Odens is being marketed, quote, for 2022, unquote. As if on cue, the first ever H5N1 positive case was identified in the U.S. at the end of April 2022. That comes from the article, Will a Weaponized Verd Flu Become the Next Pandemic? 
by Dr. Joseph Mercola, posted May 18th, originally published on the Mercola website. That's right. The FAA was paying a U.S. arms manufacturer $1.5 million in public monies to demonstrate their newest military surveillance drone over domestic U.S. territory. If this is all a surprise to you, you're not alone. The program to integrate military drones into U.S. domestic airspace has been operating for 10 years. It involves various federal agencies, DOD, FAA, NASA, Commerce, Energy, DHS, etc. But it hasn't been reported on in any major news venue since the day before the bill creating it was signed into law in 2012 by then-President Barack Obama. That comes from the article, Newest Military Killer Surveillance Drones in U.S. Domestic Airspace, by Barry Summers, posted May 18th, originally published in Covert Action magazine. Before analyzing these weapons, it is important to understand the knowledge and perception associated with the use of depleted uranium, or DU, munitions in military warfare. Which raises the obvious question, are France and NATO shipping depleted uranium weaponry into Ukraine? As this article will demonstrate, the preponderance of evidence strongly indicates that they are doing this, and the ramifications are huge, not just politically, but also legally, environmentally, as well as regarding health effects to combatants in this war. Most importantly, though, we are really talking about the long-term public health for people living in and around the country of Ukraine through the careless spreading of highly toxic and radioactive material in the region. That comes from the article, Are France and NATO Shipping Depleted Uranium Weaponry into Ukraine? By Freddy Ponton, posted May 18th, originally published on 21st Century Wire. For now, the plan is that a final version of the pandemic treaty would be presented to the World Health Assembly, or WHA, in the fall of 2023, and if approved, the pandemic treaty will become international law, sick, overruling every nation of the world's sovereign constitution. Please note, there is no provision of any international law that would give the UN, let alone a UN agency, power to override individual and sovereign nations' constitutions. None. What is being planned is totally and absolutely illegal by any standard of legality that humans have ever created. That was an excerpt from a conversation with Peter Koenig under the headline, Video, the World Health Order, or WHO, and the Global Pandemic Treaty, The Backdoor to Global Tyranny, by Peter Koenig and Angel Warrior Network, posted May 18th. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar.
we're taking a look at what's been happening in uh, Eritrea and in Ethiopia uh, over the last uh, couple of years. And uh, joining me with his perspective is Elias Amari. He is a, a journalist and editor of Horn of Africa TV. Uh, he is also an activist and uh, with the Peace Building Center for the Horn of Africa. And I last spoke to him uh, on the occasion of Glenn Ford's recent departure uh, back in the, the summertime. Um, it's good to have you with us again, Elias. Welcome. Good to be back. Uh, it's always a pleasure to talk to you, Michael. Now, uh, maybe you could start off by talking about how uh, I guess since 2018, there's been, uh, I guess, a peace treaty between Ethiopia and Eritrea, uh, so active about four years. What has the experience been like in the interim? I mean, are the people experienced uh, a lightening of tensions uh, or, or is it still tight in some areas? Well, what's the situation on the ground? Well, as you mentioned, uh, in 2018, there was a historic uh, breakthrough uh, from the power of Ethiopia that overthrew the tyrannical ethno-fascist minority regime of the TPLF, the Tigray People's Liberation Front, which had ruled the country for 27 years with the support of the, of the US and its uh, Western collective. Uh, so this regime was overthrown by a massive popular uprising in Ethiopia. A new reformist government led by Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed Ali comes to power in 2018. The first thing this young man, this young leader in Ethiopia does is he says enough of war. This war we have with Eritrea, our neighboring uh, fraternal country is senseless. We have to end it because it's bleeding the country. It's uh, bad, it's destabilizing the whole region of the Horn of Africa. So he, he makes that historic breakthrough. Uh, remember, under the TPLF, which ignited war against Eritrea in 1998, there was a, 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 a tension and war between the two countries for 20 years, from 1998 to 2018. So Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed comes in and then makes the gesture, Eritrea accepts the gesture, and he flies to Asmara, the capital of Eritrea, and a historic peace treaty is signed in uh, July of 2018. So uh, this immediately reduces the tension between the two countries, people-to-people uh, -people connections, visiting, air flight between the two countries is restored, uh, Ethiopian Airlines flies daily to Asmara, uh, families separated are reunited, uh, cultural exchanges and what have you. So there has been a lessening of tensions and the peace dividend was, uh, there was hope that the peace dividend will, would grow and would be more economic cooperation and integration. Of course, the, the peace also includes Somalia soon after that. So there's a tripartite agreement, the, the, the birth of the new Horn of Africa vision, which envisions the end of conf vicious conflicts, uh, cycle of conflict in the Horn of Africa region. But unfortunately, the TPLF 
the former ruling uh, party is still waiting in the wings, hiding in its northernmost uh, province of Tigray, and launched war again in 2020. No, to be exact, on the 3rd of November 2020, it launched war against the federal government. It attacks the uh, the northern command of the Ethiopian National Defense Forces based in Tigray. It also launches uh, rocket missile attacks against Eritrea. So this, uh, you know, uh, throws back the, the, the peace that was prevailing uh, a, a few steps backward. So there was several steps forward. The peace, the historic peace between the two countries was, uh, you know, a breakthrough. In fact, the prime minister of Ethiopia was recognized for this and given the Nobel Peace Prize in 2019. But then uh, a setback happens when the TPLF uh, launches war uh, to return to power, that is. Yeah, um, just to, I think it's also important to point out that the U.S. has been at odds with Eritrea um, and, and targeted uh, the country with sanctions over, over human rights violations, they said. Has that situation changed in any way? Or are there aspects other than the human rights that concern the U.S. regarding Eritrea? Well, uh, I wouldn't call it a human rights issue. It is the weaponization of human rights. As you know, the, the, the largest hegemon in the world, uh, U.S. imperialism always uses human rights as a beating stick to to, you know, to put in line uh, recalcitrant or enemy states that it, that it deems that are not towing the line of, of, uh, of US interests in the region. So uh, it also used the TPLF as a proxy power in the region to enforce, uh, you know, the US strategic interests in the Horn of Africa region. So in 1998, when the TPLF launched the war against Eritrea, it was done so with the blessing and support of the United States. And the situation of war prevailing between Ethiopia under the TPLF and Eritrea was uh, you know, done so with, with the blessing and support of the US, the EU and Western allies. So the TPLF was the proxy force in the region. Uh, although, the issue ostensibly of the war or the, the pretext of the war was boundary conflict between Eritrea and Ethiopia. And the two countries after the signing of Algiers peace agreement in 2000 went to international arbitration court at The Hague to resolve the border issue. Uh, and when the international arbitration court at The Hague rendered its verdict uh, Eritrea, uh, the, the, the Casus Belli, Badimed town was uh, ruled or the verdict was that this was originally Eritrean territory and the TPLF was at fault. So the TPLF rejected this, <laughs> this uh, Eritrea-Ethiopia Boundary Commission ruling. Uh, well, for the next 20 years, this sort of limbo situation prevails. Uh, the, the UN Security Council doesn't intervene. Uh, the TPLF tramples on this international ruling of the court and occupies sovereign Eritrean territory. Uh, 
to complicate the matter, in 2009 also, the United States imposed sanctions on Eritrea at the UN Security Council with the pretext that Eritrea was helping Al-Shabaab uh, extremists in Somalia. Now, this was totally bogus false charges. Anyone who knows Eritrea and the Eritrean struggle, revolutionary struggle, knows that religious extremism is against uh, Eritrea's principles and ideology. Eritrea is, uh, you know, a progressive, radical, uh, multi-plural society in which Christians and Muslims live in harmony. Uh, so it maintains a careful balance. Uh, you know, it shies away from ethnic politics, from sectarian religious uh, schism. And so the, the charge of Eritrea helping al-Shabaab uh, ex extremists in Somalia was totally bogus. But this uh, was fabricated evidence to impose sanctions on Eritrea at the UN Security Council in 2009. So from 2009 up to 2018, when peace deal was, uh, you know, was inked between Eritrea and Ethiopia, the sanctions regime stayed in force. But eventually all the charges uh, were found to be bogus and uh, they could not be maintained. Finally, they were repealed in 2018 at the UN Security Council, okay? So uh, these uh, charges against Eritrea being a spoiler in the region or human rights violation and so on and so forth were merely pretext. Uh, you know, when, when the empire wants to, to impose sanctions or economic warfare or to demonize uh, all kinds of, uh, you know, uh, bogus charges are, are brought uh, to make the accusation stick. So that was the, 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 the situation between Eritrea and Ethiopia. When the peace deal between Eritrea and Ethiopia happened in 2018, and the favored proxy uh, regime of the TPLF was ousted for power, those who were supporting uh, the TPLF in the Obama administration were waiting in the wings and they wanted the TPLF to return to power in Addis Ababa. So they push uh, their former uh, client uh, power, the TPLF, to ignite war against Eritrea and against Ethiopia in November 2020. Wow. Now, I know the Tigrayans had uh, attacked, had, had sent uh, uh, rockets out to uh, Eritrea uh, although the, the, the U.S. is presenting it as an engagement between you know, Tigray and uh, Eritrea. But I, I'm, I'm wanting to know a little bit more about the origins of the animosity between Tigray and Eritrea, because it seems to stem approximately from the, the time of the famine of 83 to 85, uh, 1983 to 1985. Um, and, uh, you know, Shortly after that, when the Tigrayans came to, to dominate the Ethiopian government, the two countries went to war. Could, could you just maybe trace, you know, those tensions that that developed and uh, became this ongoing epic? <laughs> sure, it's a long, complex history. Uh, which we have to go back, in fact, to 1975, the inception, the very beginning of this group called Tigrayan People's Liberation Front. When they started their armed struggle, they came to uh, 
the more experienced and uh, older Liberation Front in the area, the Eritrean People's Liberation Front, for help, for aid, for training, and so on. Uh, they espouse radical, uh, you know, radical vision, uh, progressive, they claim. Uh, but when they came up with their uh, TPLF manifesto of 1976, in which they espoused that their aim was for the secession of Tigray and the establishment of an independent republic, they faced tremendous pushback from their Eritrean allies, the EPLF, the Eritrean People's Liberation Front, as well as from radical revolutionary movements inside Ethiopia, because secession was not warranted in, in Ethiopia. The issue in Ethiopia was that of democratization, ousting the military regime and ushering in a, a democratic system. True, Ethiopia had its own uh, long history, uh, maybe of empire state formation and so on and so forth. Uh, ethnic groups uh, were marginalized and oppressed, but uh, Eritrea believed that the way to go to resolve this, uh, these issues of co these contradictions within Ethiopia was by uh, bringing in democratic change, democratizing the state. Uh, so the tension begins then. Because they were weaker, the TPLF then dropped their manifesto, the TPLF manifesto, their secessionist agenda, and uh, played along uh, to be allies of, of Eritrea, the EPLF. They struggled side by side against the Dirk. But as you said, in 1983, they break off relations with the EPLF. Uh, there, there had always been in this group, the clique, the leadership, uh, a sort of insecurity uh, of uh, inferiority complex, you might say, or that uh, Tigray had been oppressed by the ruling Amhara class in Ethiopia and looked down upon by, by Eritrea and so on and so forth. But these are not political issues, uh, really. And if there is any uh, ethnic animosities, they could, they could be worked out by, by a common struggle. But uh, at this time, because of the famine situation in Ethiopia and in Eritrea and the Horn of Africa in general, they benefited from this, the food aid that was coming in from Western donors I mean, uh, declassified CIA documents indicate that the TPLF uh, used the food aid that was coming to enrich itself, to empower itself. Uh, over $100 million worth of aid was coming in. And from this, uh, they only gave 5% to the starving population. The rest was used to empower themselves. And uh, the animosities against EPLF continued for a while. But in 1988, when the EPLF in Eritrea scored a stunning victory against the Dirk uh, military positions, the TPLF realizes that its way to power to Addis Ababa would be to, to make up with the EPLF and to, you know, to, to get the help of the EPLF to push the Dirk out, to ask the Dirk out of power. And it, so there was a reconciliation in 1988 and the two fronts alongside other, uh, you know, insurgent movements formed alliance and push all the way to Addis Ababa to oust or to overthrow the, the Dirk military regime in Addis Ababa. So in 1991, uh, Eritrea scores a total victory inside Eritrea. In Ethiopia too, uh, you know, the alliance of the EPLF and the EPRDF, the umbrella organization in which the TPLF was the, the key, uh, the major partner, uh, Austerberg. 
So the, the TPLF then uh, captures state power in Ethiopia. For a while, there was uh, somewhat good relationship between Eritrea and Ethiopia. Eritrea, of course, gets its independence uh, after uh, you know, the referendum in 1993. Uh, there were good relationships until in 1997, the TPLF decides that it wants to, you know, to be the regional uh, big power with the support of the United States, remember it becomes the proxy power of the, uh, the US proxy in the region. So with, with the support of the US, it launches uh, the, the border conflict against Eritrea, the war in 1998. And uh, elsewhere in Ethiopia also, it crashes other opposition movements, commits massive atrocities against, mm, you know, against uh, rebel forces or, uh, ethnic groups uh, commits genocide in the Somalia Ogaden region, in the Gambela region. All these are documents, even uh, Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch have documented this. Uh, in 2005, it steals the election in which it was defeated. Uh, and so the, the tyranny and the misrule, uh, the kleptocracy continues of this narrow, uh, frightened minority group called TPLF. Remember, the TPLF hails from a region called Tigray, which constitutes 5% of the Ethiopian population. So the way it ruled Ethiopia was through what I would call an ethnic apartheid system. It introduces ethnic politics, what it called ethnic federalism, and thereby through divide and rule machinations, it imposes its minority rule over the rest of uh, the majority of Ethiopians. But the resistance continues. Uh, of course, the war with Eritrea uh, is continuing. Um, eventually, uh, massive popular uprising begins in 2012 and continues for five years, six years, until finally in 2018, the regime collapses and a reform government was brought in into Ethiopia. So uh, it's this kind of uh, com a very complex and highly nuanced relationship between TPLF and Eritrea. Uh, and you need to go back to, uh, to 1975 and examine uh, the history throughout the past 46 years uh, to understand this. Okay. I mean, it would take me <laughs> yeah. over two hours to explain this. I have done uh, a 10 hour documentary series on Horn of Africa TV, examining this, the toxic TPLF legacy in, in, in the okay. Horn of Africa. Okay, I think we've only got about 30 seconds left in the interview. Could you tell me about uh, the House Resolution 6600? I mean, it's much more uh, damaging in terms of sanctions than uh, we've seen in recent years. What, what is your group doing to, to fight against it? Well, uh, these are intended to punish both Ethiopia and Eritrea uh, using sanctions, which are economic warfare, uh, and to help the TPLF. The TPLF is now, once again, launching a third round of offensive of war uh, against Ethiopia and Eritrea. It's preparing, all the signs are there. So uh, on the one hand, its patrols are feeding the war machine of the TPLF under the guise of uh, food aid. And the, the TPLF hijacks this food aid to feed its army uh, and continue the war. Very destructive war, which uh, so far has caused the death of our uh, you know, over a million of uh, Ethiopians. 
on both sides. So uh, the sanctions that are being introduced in the US uh, House of Representatives, HR 6600, and the Senate Bill 3199 are meant to uh, frighten, to scare Ethiopia and Eritrea to, uh, you know, and to punish them for, uh, you know, for going against this uh, recalcitrant uh, insurgent group called TPLF, which has been so far the political cancer uh, of, of the region, destabilizing the whole region of the Horn of Africa. Okay. I've got to leave it there, but I want to thank you for uh, joining us and, and explaining a little bit more about the situation. I appreciate having you on. <laughs> thank you so much. Yeah, we spent uh, a lot of time, I think, on, on, on the background. Uh, there was a bit of uh, a thing that I wanted to insert on the no more movement, a popular movement that is uh, mobilizing in the United States and in the diaspora from Ethiopians and Eritreans. Uh, that are resisting this uh, this unfair sanctions that are that are being prepared against Ethiopia and Eritrea. Okay. That, that was an important thing to mention. Okay, good to talk to you, Elias. Thank you. Good to talk to you, Michael. Uh, anytime you want to to revisit this issue, I'm available. Perhaps in, in if there is interest in the next week, uh, it would be good to revisit this no more movement, popular movement. Uh, because war is imminent once again in the region. And uh, U.S. interventionism, this R2P humanitarian intervention that is being pushed by the neoliberals, the likes of Samantha Power, okay. uh, can, can create tremendous havoc in the region. Okay. Thanks, Elias Amari. Thank you, Michael. We've been speaking to journalist and editor of Horn Africa TV, uh, Elias Amari. is also uh, from... Eritrea. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcasting from CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and from partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. And Garrison tends to specialize in reports on Africa for Pacifica Community Radio Station KPFA, operating out of Berkeley, Presno. And uh, Santa Cruz, California. She's also a leader reporter for the Black Agenda Report. I should also point out she received the Victoire Ingabir Umuhosa Democracy and Peace Prize for promoting peace through her reporting on conflict in the African Great Lakes region. She joins me now during her tour of Ethiopia and Eritrea where she has been on the scene getting valuable information around the circumstances of the year and a half long civil war gripping the country. She can also correct some of the reports by mainstream Western media about the situation on the ground. And Garrison, it's a real treat having you back. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour. Thank you for having me. Now, you moved from reporting about the African Great Lakes to now the Horn of Africa. What was it about that region that first attracted your attention in recent months? Well, a, a theme of mine, a lifetime theme of mine, has been opposing U.S. aggression overseas uh, for the past 12 to, 12 to 12 and more years, uh, U.S. aggression in Africa. And so U.S. backing for the Tigrayan People's Liberation Front, otherwise known as the TPLF, which ruled Ethiopia with an iron fist from 1991 to, to 2018. Um, 
and then their backing of the TPLF war on Ethiopia that began on November 3rd, 2020, um, that attracted me. Mm. Well, the, the TPLF, as you mentioned, had been controlling the way things operate in the country from 1991 to 2018. Then it was overthrown in a popular movement. The TPLF was a proxy for, for U.S. power interests. Talk a bit about what you know about the history of the involvement with the U.S. How or when a deal was forged and, and what each offered in return for mutual aid. Well, I believe the U.S. backed the TPLF during the war against the Derg, the previous regime that was overthrown in 1991, uh, in spite of the TPLF at that time professing a Marxist-Leninist ideology, which it pretty much abandoned after it came to power and after the Soviet Union collapsed. The United States considered Ethiopia an anchor state. It's the largest, most populous and powerful state uh, in the Horn of Africa, uh, which is, of course, geostrategically critical, right on the Red Sea, across from the Arabian Peninsula. Um, it, no matter what the TPLF did, and no matter how brutally it ruled, the U.S. backed it. In fact, in 20, I believe it was 2015, um, it was 2015 or 2016, there was an election that the TPLF claimed to have won by 100%. And in a press conference, Susan Rice laughed about it. Um, several reporters in the press pool asked her whether or not she thought that was a credible election. She and Obama were about to go to Ethiopia. And she laughed and said, oh yes, 100%. 100% credible, uh, an election won by 100%. Um, and, and, then, and then she and Obama went to Ethiopia and lauded its democracy. Mm. So um, that, was, that was the bargain. Oh, and another important part of this is that in 2006, I believe it was 2006, I might have to go check the date, but I think it was 2006, uh, the U.S. backed um, an Ethiopian invasion of Somalia, which overthrew the Islamic courts. And the result has been violence and chaos and uh, U.S. military occupation in, in the form of Amazon, which is supposedly an African Union mission, but which is really controlled by the U.S. has been, and Biden just... Uh, subsequent to the election of a new president uh, in Somalia this week, um, introduced another 450 U.S. troops uh, back into Somalia. Trump had withdrawn them, and um, Biden introduced troops to Somalia again this week. Wow. Uh, wow. Could, could you talk a little bit more about where the reporting on the situation in Ethiopia is flawed, if not totally wrong. Oh, it's horrible. The mainstream reporting is absolutely horrible. Uh, from the very beginning, it has depicted uh, the TPLF as victims. And uh, there were cries of genocide. Uh, um, that campaign was, in the beginning, led by Samantha Power. And there's still a constant refrain that Ethiopia is using food as a weapon to defeat Tigray, 
that they are blocking aid trucks going through going through Afar, that's a region of Ethiopia, into Mekelle, the capital of Tigray. Now, I was just in Afar, and one thing I observed was a large convoy of international Red Cross trucks going to Mekelle, the capital, again, of Tigray. Um, and a, a New Zealand journalist I was traveling with, Alistair Thompson, the founder of Scoop, that's a, a New Zealand web publication. Um, he he also saw large numbers of convoys going into Mekelle through Afar. Now, the jarring thing about this was that the, the TPLF attacked Afar, and there is just immeasurable suffering that we saw in Afar. Um, the majority of the population of Afar are desert nomads. Uh, they, they also have cities. And they were attacked by the TPLF, and there are now IDP camps all up and down this, this highway, and where I was in Samara. And we didn't see any convoys heading for uh, these Afar IDP camps. We saw them all heading to McKelly. Wow. Uh, uh, and... The day before I left Afar, we visited the Dupti General Hospital, which is near Samara, and they were facing a, a tremendous health crisis. They had been completely overwhelmed by uh, the hundreds of thousands of IDPs. They'd been completely overwhelmed by, by the war and the needs of the hundreds of thousands of IDPs created by the war. That's internally displaced people. Yeah, yeah, IDPs, internally displaced, internally displaced people. And nearby there was a large uh, IDP camp. Uh, I believe it's estimated that there are over 40,000 IDPs there. And uh, there's a measles outbreak threatened. Uh, one of the doctors in this hospital told us that... Uh, uh, infant mal malnutrition, infant and ch uh, early childhood malnutrition was uh, something they had to treat before the war, but they were completely overwhelmed by it now, and we visited these pediatric wards that looked very overcrowded, many children being treated for mal malnutrition, and, uh, you know, when you have a lot of children crowded together in a hospital, you have a breeding ground for disease and they're afraid that they're facing a measles outbreak. They had sent some tests to Addis Ababa to confirm that that was what they were facing. Uh, but there's a danger that measles will sweep through this IDP population, sweep through the pediatric wards in this hospital, and these infants and children under five who are already malnourished are, are extremely vulnerable. So there could be a catastrophically fatal wave of measles sweeping through this IDP population. And we interviewed some IDP families in Samara the night before we went to the hospital. And three of those children, three of the children we met there, were showing all the signs of measles. Wow. wow. Um, and in addition to that, now it gets, that IDP camp gets even even worse. I left the, the day after we, we, we went to the hospital. 
And we were in that IDP camp that day. And after we'd been there for a while, uh, someone came up, um, someone who was the leader in the community came up to us and, and said quite recently, look, you just can't come in here and start taking pictures and recording. Uh, we have a council you have to talk to. And so we said, that's perfectly reasonable. We left. But the next day, um, the journalist I had been traveling with, Alistair Thompson of Scoop New Zealand, went back, um, arranged to go back, and he told me on the phone yesterday that they had no clean water and that three or four children were dying there a day. Wow. But, but let, me say, let me say again, and, and what's really shocking about this is that all of the mainstream news is about the suffering in Tigray and how Ethiopia is starving Tigray. Um, and there's very, very, very little word about Amhara and Afhara. Amhara is the other region that the TPLF invaded. And I, I also went to, to Amhara. That was where I first went when I arrived. And I saw horrible suffering going on in the IDP camps there as well. Yeah, now just so, yeah. so we, the so listeners so we, can get acquainted, Tigray is the northernmost province of Ethiopia, then south of there is uh, Amhara on the west and Afar on the right, and then south of both of those, yeah. right in the center of the country, is Addis Ababa. And north of Tigray is Eritrea. Right. And Eritrea apparently bombed the uh, Eritrea and, and multiple times, if I'm not mistaken. No. Ethiopia bombed Eritrea. Yeah, Ethiopia was at war with Eritrea for more than a decade. Uh, but once the TPLF were ousted from power, it became clear that that had not been a war between Ethiopia and Eritrea, but a war between the TPLF and Eritrea. And um, the, Eritrean, the Eritrean army has been in uh, Western Tigray. Um, I shouldn't have called that Western Tigray. <laughs> they have been in Ethiopia with the, with the Ethiopian army uh, defending uh, against the TPLF. Mm. Uh, there's a disputed territory which Tigray calls Western Tigray but which was traditionally populated by Amhara people. Uh, so part of the argument going on is whether that is uh, that area is part of Tigray or whether it is part of Amhara region. Um, the, part of the tragedy, though, of this whole story is that uh, th there were no ethnic regions. Before 1991, I believe that Tigray was the only region in Ethiopia that had an ethnic name. It was called Tigray. Uh, but the TPLF divided the country in, into ethnic regions. And so you had an Amhara, you have now still, according to the current constitution, an Amhara region, Oromia, an Oromia region, and Afar region. These didn't exist before. And ethnicities in those regions, um, the regions uh, that they were named for, had greater rights, uh, like, and Amhara had greater rights in Amhara, Tigray, and greater rights than other Ethiopians in Tigray. Um, Oromos greater rights in Oromia than than other Ethiopians, and this 
was the cause for a horrible ethnic strife, and the TPLF ruled by manipulating this ethnic strife for 27 years. And the country is still dealing with that horrible legacy. I've got to say, there have been times when I just I haven't known what to say. I've wanted to throw up my hands hearing about another iteration of ethnic argument going on. And they've made it difficult to talk about by calling this Amhara region and that Afar region and this Oromi region. They've made it difficult to talk about um, Ethiopia. And the challenge that I think Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed has tried to live up to and is still trying to, to live up to is to create a sense of Ethiopian citizenship that supersedes ethnic identity. In terms of the areas most affected, is it the, the just the northern region? Because I remember hearing in the, the mainstream that there was Tigrayans are winning and they were going to go into Addis Ababa and, and bomb them. And there was all this concern about uh, how you know, the uh, Addis Ababa is in great peril. Was there any... Uh, well, what's the reality of the situation? Where is the violence confined? Well, the the Ethiopian government declared a unilateral truce some months back. And it seems that the TPLF has withdrawn from Afar just within the past few weeks, has finally withdrawn back into the borders of Tigray. It's hard to say about Western, what, what we've been sort of the Western press has has uh, encouraged us to call Western Tigray and what the TPLF called Western Tigray, but which is actually this disputed territory, including um, Walkite, Salemt, and Tsegedi. Now, um, there seems to be sporadic fighting there, and what people are afraid of is that the TPLF is amassing an army uh, across the border in Sudan to restart the war. And they have been making noise and saying that they are going to do that. Um, as I understand it, the fighting is now sporadic, but the war is not over. Involvement of the dam over the Nile, the, the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam, the GERD, has been provocative to to Egypt and Sudan, and and China has been a major financier of the project. You know, so there's a sort of a China versus uh, United States dynamic going on here. Can you say to what extent this dam and the larger U.S. versus China tensions might be playing a role in terms of the blame for this uh, civil war? Oh, it, it's a huge part of it. And um, one correction regarding the GERD, the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam, and one of the most exciting things about it is that that has been financed by Ethiopians and the Ethiopian diaspora. Um, Chinese interests have actually been building the infrastructure. And I don't know exactly what their relationship with uh, the Ethiopian government about that is, but um, Chinese concerns have been, have been building the electricity delivery infrastructure. 
Um, Egypt, of course, doesn't, well, Egypt doesn't want a competitor. Egypt doesn't want to see Ethiopia emerge as a regional powerhouse in the Horn of Africa. And, and Egypt is competing with Ethiopia uh, for the market for electricity. Um, hydroelectric power, uh, most of all that, that of the GERD, is one of Ethiopia's greatest resources. And it has, has contracted to uh, sell electricity to um, nations to to its east, west, and east, west, and south, and it's competing with uh, Egypt to do that. And Egypt has also taken this just astonishingly arrogant stance, saying that that all of the Nile River belongs to them, and they waived some uh, British colonial treaty that said that from way back in the, the beginning of the 20th century uh, to say that the Nile River all belongs to them. Well, 75% of the Nile waters originate in Ethiopia at Lake Tano and they flow down into Sudan and then Egypt. Um, the GERD is one of the most exciting and unifying things happening here. It has the potential to deliver electricity to all of Ethiopia. Um, and I believe that somewhere, somewhere around 50% of Ethiopians have electricity now. Um, and so, you know, th this would solve one of the biggest, the biggest problems that uh, all of Africa suffers from which is electricity poverty. This has held the whole continent back for a long time. The Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam uh, would be, I believe, the largest dam in Africa, seventh in the world. Wow, uh, wow. Yeah, and, and, and it's a source of great pride that it has been financed uh, by Ethiopians and Ethiopians in diaspora by and bonds. Mm. Um, Samantha Power, uh, with regard to the, the Chinese-U.S. Um, competition here, Samantha Power, when she took the helm of USAID, said that she would use it to counter Chinese influence in Africa. And uh, going back to what I was saying about the suffering in Afar, what I saw there um, were some of the contradictions of empire in that USAID was very, very present. The US has uh, defended the TPLF actions and made TPLF out to be victims um, and threatened the Ethiopian government from the very beginning of this war. Uh, and yet, there they are. Um, <laughs> responding or seeming to respond to the damage that the TPLF caused by invading Afar. Uh, it's, it's sort of a typical U.S. mode of operation, which is to send in proxy, war, proxy warriors who do immeasurable damage and, uh, and then send USAID and the rest of the NGO industrial complex in to mop up the mess. In this hospital I was talking about, in Dupti General Hospital, uh, 
as I said, that that, that is a a uh, free public hospital, and yet it was overwhelmed by the consequences of the TPLF war. And so with this measles outbreak pending, they had to appeal to uh, the big NGOs, Save the Children and who else, but USAID. And as we were leaving that hospital, there were USAID trucks driving in to unload supplies. And they, facing a catastrophic epidemic, uh, they have to accept uh, any help they can get. So they, they, they're not in a position to say, no, we don't want help from USAID, US back the TPLF, which caused this war. They're medical professionals and they have to, they have to deal with the health, health crisis um, without politics. And, but that leaves it up to the rest of us to, to urge, to urge, that's the best word I can come up with here, the U.S. to stop backing the TPLF and, uh, and, and not to pass the sanctions. We should probably talk about the sanctions bill. There are two sanctions bills pending in the U.S. Congress to punish both Ethiopia and Eritrea. Mm -hmm. um, there are House Resolution 6600 and Senate Bill 3199. And these are and more, these sanctions are, are going to be beyond all the previous sanctions that were directed to them, right? Yeah, the previous sanctions, or the, the most punishing thing about the previous sanctions uh, was the cancellation of AGOA, the African Growth and Opportunity Act, uh, which allows manufacturers doing business in Ethiopia to uh, import goods uh, tariff-free into the United States, into the, the big United States market. Uh, that was canceled uh, on January 1st. Uh, wow. Other sanctions were on wow. individuals and um, individuals and military officials and didn't have as much consequence. In fact, I was in Eritrea for a week and as they told me, that first round of sanctions did not affect them because they don't have any, <laughs> they don't have any uh, public officials or uh, military officers who have assets in the U.S. or in the West, um, and and or, or have great ambitions to travel in the West, so they they didn't suffer from those, and they had been kicked out of Agoa so long ago that that was irrelevant to them. But the worst thing, or one of the worst things, about these pending sanctions is that they would be secondary sanctions, so they would publish punish. Um, uh, governments and uh, business entities doing business in Ethiopia or Eritrea. Mm. Um, and uh, this could be particularly harmful, well, it would be, it would be, it would be harmful in both places, but I, I want to note that um, this, unlike the other sanctions, would punish Eritrea because Eritrea has been negotiating unprecedented uh, deals for its mineral resources, Eritrea um, and Ethiopia, but Eritrea sits completely within what's called the Arabian Nubian, um, the Arabian Nubian Shield, which is um, an area of great uh, mineral wealth. And Eritrea has, for its potash, for example, negotiated a 50-50 deal. 
so that the government gets 50%, uh, a 50% share in the potash mining uh, in uh, one of its first mining efforts, a gold mine, um, the, the Bisha mine. Um, they have a deal uh, which is 40% for the government, 60% for the mining company, and then a 34% capital gains tax. These are unprecedented. I mean, usually, usually the African resource extraction deals are just outright robbery. Uh, the, the African nation is supposed to get something like 5% often, and, and then they don't even get that because the corporation lies about how much or, their, or oil or gas they're extracting um, and otherwise manages to leave next to nothing behind except in the hands of the kleptocrats who negotiated the deals like uh, Uganda's Museveni, Rwanda's Kagame, and uh, now Congo's Chisikedi. Um, you know, we've only got uh, about a minute left, uh, but uh, could okay. you maybe just quickly uh, point out, uh, you know, the U.S. has NATO backing them in Ukraine, and, and this may mean that uh, other end battles such as Ethiopia was are similarly bedeviled by NATO groupthink. Will Ethiopia become the next Libya? Well, that is what Ethiopians were afraid of at the very beginning. Uh, immediately uh, when the TPLF a uh, attacked and the U.S. lined up behind the TPLF, uh, there were cries that they were going to be the next Libya, Syria, Yugoslavia. Um, I, I mentioned the ethnic, the ethnic strife that was manipulated by the TPLF and um, one of the dangers here is that the country could break up, could break up into a bunch of weak ethno-linguistic states. Um, and that may be the U.S. goal. If it can't have Ethiopia, if it can't hold on to Ethiopia as its quote-unquote anchor state in the horn, then I might just want to see it dissolve. Uh, Ann Garrison, it's been a pleasure hearing from you again. Thanks for sharing some of your reporting with the Global Research News Hour. Uh, thank you for having me. And uh, I've probably been more articulate about this uh, in my reports in the Black Agenda Report. So uh, I would like to refer everyone to Black Agenda Report, uh, not only for, its, for my reporting, but its other reporting on Africa. Okay, thanks a lot. Okay, thank you. That was our conversation with journalist Ann Garrison of KPFA Community Radio and of Black Agenda Report. Thanks for tuning in. Next week, tune in a discussion about the new challenges of organized labor in the face of the coming fourth industrial revolution. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, a program funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe, Ininu, Oji Cree, Diné, and Dakota, the birthplace of the Métis Nation and the heart of the Métis Nation homeland. The show is aired on other radio stations across Canada and the United States and available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, please email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I've been the show's host and producer, Michael Welch. Thank you once again for joining us.